Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is my good friend, Todd Harrison, the Managing Director for Matreya Strategic Insights, the independent internal think tank within the Innovative Defense and Aerospace Company. Before joining Matreya, Todd spent seven years heading the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He also uh, did some time at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He ranks as one of the sharpest budget minds in all of Washington and beyond. Todd, welcome to the program. Wow, Vago, I don't know if I can live up to all of that. Uh, Yeah, indeed. We'll let the audience judge it uh, at the end of this uh, conversation. Uh, But first, a quick word from our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Todd, let's first start with uh, the debt. I want to go to posture hearings and takeaways, but it's all pretty relevant. Uh, God forbid, uh, if there is a debt default. Uh, we lived through this, uh, you and I did, when I yeah, used to have a TV show and it was in another uh, publication. Uh, and we were went through the whole process that went into the BCA uh, and ended up, um, you know, getting dinged. We, we got the BCA in part because Wall Street panicked. We had a debt downgrade that we still haven't lived off. Um, from your standpoint, where are we? Where are we going? Because folks are starting to get very worried uh, about um, a debt default, ultimately. Yeah, no, I'm whenever people ask me questions like, you know, what do you think the defense, what level you think the defense budget's going to end up at in FY24? You know, how long might we be under a continuing resolution? Do you think there might be, you know, government shutdown at the start of the fiscal year? All of that, I, I point to the the debt ceiling debate and say we need to figure that out first. Once we see how Congress deals with the debt ceiling, then we will have a lot more insight into what the level of the defense budget is actually going to be. Is Congress going to add more money this year? And how much? And how quickly can they get the appropriations done? All of it is depending on the debt ceiling. And at this point, uh, I think you have to look at the situation and say, you know, we are on a path that is headed off the fiscal cliff into the, you know, the abyss, the unknown of what happens when the U.S. government actually defaults on its obligations. Um, and we have there have been many opportunities to take, you know, exits off of that path. And so far, uh, our government has not taken any of those exits. We are still barreling towards it. So we don't know exactly when we're going to hit that. We should know more this month when CBO updates its forecast. But right now, we're still nowhere close to seeing uh, an agreement, a negotiated agreement on how to deal with the debt ceiling. And everything else depends on that. Uh, your uh, point was uh, discretionary spending was held hostage. And hostages only matter if uh, those taking the hostages value the lives of those hostages, right? Or or somebody yeah. values, you, you know what I mean? Right. You, you're the one who used the hostage analogy. Anyway, yeah. is anybody valuing the life of any hostage. And one of the things that people are grappling to understand is what a debt default means. And the point I like to make is, if you want national security, you have to, if you like national security and believe in national security, it's not about weapons. If you damage the creditworthiness of the US government, the $30 billion extra the Pentagon might get get evaporates in like seconds, right? 
Right. Two-part question. Is there any sense in your mind that anybody is viewing at the hostage situation differently this time? And second, do full do people who are making these decisions, in your view, actually understand what a debt default means and the damage it's going to cause? Well, I, I, to, to use the hostage-taking metaphor here, um, I think the answer to both questions uh, is, you know, really what what folks who are refusing to increase the debt ceiling. Um, what they're doing is they're taking the U.S. economy as a hostage, uh, but I think they do not realize that that's what they're doing. So what does that mean for a hostage if they're being taken hostage, but the hostage taker doesn't realize they took them hostage? Um, it creates a very complicated and confusing situation, to say the least. Uh, and How do you negotiate with a hostage taker uh, that doesn't think the hostage is the same person you think the hostage is? Right. Uh, and so that's really what's at stake here. Um, you, you, you can try to do economic modeling of what happens uh, if the U.S. defaults. Um, and, and what do we mean by default? Do we actually default on debt by not making debt servicing payments? Or do we default on obligations by not paying other bills? What other bills do you not pay? Uh, do you cut off Social Security checks? Do you stop you know, Medicare reimbursements? Do you stop payments to uh, you know military personnel? They're paying benefits. Do you do you stop payments to contractors? Like you know, what combination of these things would you have to do, and what would the effect be on the economy? It's kind of like trying to model you know what happens you know the day after a full on nuclear exchange where all nuclear weapons in the world are used. Um, it's pretty difficult to try to model that and figure out mm. what happens next and how you respond. Um, but we all know it's going to be really, really bad. And like you said, you know, we we debate every year, you know, you know, you know, tens, you know, billions of dollars plus or minus in the defense budget and other parts of the federal budget. Um, that all evaporates and what you've, you know, would do to interest rates uh and you know the the value of the US dollar, right? Uh that all evaporates overnight and you have to reset everything. And it's and what's funny is that the people doing this appear not to recognize that that is the most powerful weapon the United States has is its economy is the dollar uh, and and the fact that the United States has never before defaulted, which is the reason why people are happy to loan us thirty eight trillion dollars. Uh, um, well, and, and to, I'm going to say it another way that you know uh, our economy and particularly our uh, our government's ability to borrow money in a crisis is critical to national security. Every major war we fought in our history has been debt financed. So if we cannot borrow money, if we don't have access to credit markets as a, you know, a safe, uh, you know, organization to lend money to, um, that directly affects our national security and the deterrence that we try to offer to prevent conflicts from happening around the world. Whether you like it or not, Republicans did vote on a package, uh, a one-year uh, debt ceiling increase combined with uh, spending cuts. Obviously, uh, they want to undo uh, whatever it is that the president has done. And the White House is unwilling to negotiate on this, right? They've wanted a clean uh, debt ceiling uh, increase. Ultimately, how does this play out? Because there are some in Washington who don't want this outcome to happen, even though 
we didn't want a budget control act to happen either right and we ended up uh with it uh in a you know to avoid going over the fiscal cliff again we got downgraded and we're still living with the downgrade what what's your sense on how this plays out uh because ultimately it doesn't get resolved without negotiation yeah, I mean, you look back at 12 years ago um, and the uh, debate, you know, over the debt ceiling back then, uh, it's very similar uh, in, in terms of the demands being offered. Uh, what we ended up with in the Budget Control Act was basically um, an agreement to increase the debt ceiling in exchange for unspecified cuts. But the trick was there was an enforcement mechanism to make sure that some cuts did occur. Right. And so that was sequestration. Um, I, I think that the, the memory is still there. The scar tissue is still there that folks do not want to go down that road again uh, in terms of having an enforcement mechanism like sequestration being triggered. Uh, I think that there is a scenario in which House Republicans uh, you know, agree to some unspecified funding cuts in exchange for a temporary uh, suspension of the debt ceiling, right? And that just kind of punts the issue further into the future. And we can all breathe a sigh of relief for some period of time. Um, there's also a scenario in which they get down to the very end. Um, and, you know, uh, one side blinks again, you know, just kicks the ball down the road. Um, there is there is a real possibility, though, that we get all the way to the end and they just cannot muster uh, enough Republican votes in the House to pass anything. Um, and so then I think McCarthy is going to be forced to choose. Uh, does he, you know, do what's in the best interest of the economy um, and allow a vote on something that, you know, about two dozen members of his caucus don't support? Um, and he probably loses his speakership uh, after that. Um, or does he just you know, basically hand it over to the Biden administration and say, hey, we're not increasing it. So you guys decide what to do, how to prioritize payments or maybe just ignore the debt ceiling and let it go to the courts or whatever uh, they would want to do. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's a real possibility that we end up in that scenario. Um, and uh, Janet Yellen uh, yesterday uh, said, uh, that the U.S. must raise uh, the debt limit. Um, I should have mentioned that earlier, uh, as as early as June one, to try to avoid a debt uh, default. So, I mean, we're sort of right there. And and Byron uh, joined us on the program yesterday to talk about credit default swaps and the insurance that you know what insurance is running on every uh, million dollars uh, is um, right. I mean, there are financial effects to 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 all of this, even even if. Uh, it, it seems like uh, to, to some a disconnected kabuki dance. Um, let me, so let's put the end of the world scenario aside and just assume that they're going to somehow uh, square this way. We have posture hearings that's ongoing. You joined us about six weeks ago, if memory serves correctly, uh, five or six weeks ago to sort of talk about what you, know, you thought about the budget and the, and the submission. We've had uh, hearings. What, what are the key takeaways, right? The language and where do you ultimately think we end up? I mean, do we, you know, members both in public and private and, and chairman, mm -hmm. uh, we had Rob Whitman on of the Airland uh, subcommittee uh, uh, recently, you know, who said that, you know, he sees more money, not a lot more money given uh, the environment we're in. There are some folks who use the $30 billion number. Anyway, walk us through takeaways and where you think we ultimately end up, assuming we don't go over uh, the fiscal falls in a barrel. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I mean, if we can assume that away for the moment, um, I, I, you know, I think Congress is in a position to add more money uh, to the defense budget this year. Um, you know, some of that might be additional, you know, Ukraine supplemental funding as necessary, but I think in just the regular DOD budget, um, you know, there, there's a handful of things that they'll want to plus up. And it seems like something in the neighborhood of 20 or 30 billion should be doable, you know, notwithstanding whatever kind of budget deal they might get uh, out of the, the debt ceiling negotiations. It is not going to be quite as um, open spigot uh, in terms of the budget increase as we've seen for the past two years, perhaps. Uh, but I think Congress is still pretty favorably inclined uh, to plus up, plus up the defense budget. Um, but then, you know, you, you look within the budget, I think that there's a lot of interesting things going on there, things that, uh, you know, only in the very detailed documentation uh, that we've really been able to, to start to dig into in just the past few weeks, once they've gotten all of that posted uh, and out there. Uh, I think that, you know, Congress is is going to have a lot of things that they're going to be digging into and trying to figure out what's in this FIDAP, what's in the five-year plan. Uh, and what does that mean? Are there things in there we can accelerate, move forward into FY24 if got some more money to play with? Uh, are there things we need to be worried about that aren't necessarily realistic, things that maybe should go slower or money they're not going to be able to execute? So I think that there's going to be a lot of activity uh, in this budget season on the Hill. And where do you think most of that activity is going to be, right? What what were the things you heard in posture hearings and where you see the sentiment of lawmakers going? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I'm not a close follower of all the uh, the posture hearings, um, but I think the sentiment, you know, is generally positive, supportive. Uh, I think that there is continued focus on the, uh, the threats posed by China uh, and our ability to deter China uh, and to maintain deterrence, especially with respect to, you know, any Chinese action against Taiwan. Uh, to maintain deterrence uh, within the next five years. So I think both the department and Congress uh, seem to be incredibly focused on, you know, what can we do now and in the next few years to improve our conventional deterrence uh, with respect to China? Uh, yeah, but now, you know, beyond the hearings, just like looking in the detailed budget justification documents, which I always like to do, um, a few things like popped out at me is really interesting that I don't think have been discussed, uh, you know, at least not openly. Um, so one is if you look at the Navy's uh, budget projections for uh, aircraft carriers, they've got a funding line in there that's been used for the Ford class carrier. Um, and you look all the way out in the fight app in FY28, they show that they're going to be buying uh, an, another carrier, CVN 82, but the gross weapon system cost that they list for that is a bit surprising. Uh, they're projecting it's going to be $17.3 billion. Uh, you know, you look back at the other Ford class carriers and, you know, they were, they were around $13 billion each. Uh, so this is a significant increase uh, they're projecting in the cost. So it'd be interesting to, you know, understand more about what's driving that, you know, uh, why are they projecting uh, it's going to be over $17 billion. The other interesting one I found was the uh, GBSD program, ground-based strategic deterrent. That's the new uh, ICBM the Air Force is buying. They've got their procurement line in there um, for the first time this year, and it's got the projection all the way out 
to FY28. What's interesting there is they show a ramp in production up to a rate of 56 missiles per year by FY27. So it's a very fast ramp in production. Uh, and then they, it looks like they're going to stay at that 56 missiles per year, at least for the foreseeable future. Wow. Um, so that, you know, I have to admit, like, that's a, a lot faster ramp than I was anticipating on that program. But I can understand how it makes sense, given how quickly they have to replace the Minuteman 3s. Uh, they're going to be aging out uh, starting in the early 2030s. Are, but are you able to quantify, like, here are the places you think more money is is going to go right i mean we've said that munitions are a priority the pentagon last week put a pretty big contract out uh to lockheed martin almost five billion dollars for guided uh glm gmlrs what what were are some of the other areas where you think congress is going to intercede right of that 30 billion dollars where do you think stuff well, I, goes i i think shipbuilding always um they're going to add back uh, stuff that they wanted to see in there that the Navy doesn't have in the shipbuilding plan. So, um, you know, that's, that's a usual one. Um, I think that in munitions, uh, I think in some, you know, select cases where they're, uh, whether we need to invest in additional, uh, industrial capacity, or we need to keep, uh, procurement quantities up in order su to support, uh, industrial capacity. I think Congress is poised to step in, but I will say, the munitions, you know, uh, request that's in this budget is actually pretty robust. Um, you see a lot of really big investments uh, in munitions across the board. Uh, and I, I was actually just looking, uh, the largest procurement line in the Army's budget over the FIDAP, if you add up what they project over the next five years, uh, the largest single procurement line item for the Army is in uh, Gimler's uh, guided multiple launch right. rocket system. Um, so, you know, it, it's not it's not trivial investments that we're talking about here. Um, but I think Congress will be keeping an eye out for capacity and production issues where they can step in and, and be of assistance. Um, let me take you to language. Is there any interesting language that jumped out at you, right? Because uh, the process or, or, or you think is going to generate interesting language, um, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's through public-private partnerships, uh, obviously, um, you know, Matreya is a company that prides itself on sort of, of lack of a better word, turnkey solutions or leased solutions, right? In, instead of buying a whole bunch of uh, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance assets, we will make that investment, keep it current, furnish it to you as a service, some of this stuff has sort of collided against legislative barriers, sort of more broadly, you know, are you seeing any interesting language, uh, any, any pushes to sort of more thoughtfully try to address some of these uh, capabilities, shortfalls, and to try to do them more quickly? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's too soon to say in terms of actual language. Um, I mean, I, you know, I pay attention to this, you know, just because of where I'm coming from. But uh, it looks like Congress continues to be favorably inclined in general towards, you know, DOD's efforts to better leverage what's uh, happening in the commercial space, leveraging commercial innovation and commercial solutions for, you know, national security applications. Um, I think that there are real questions about uh, how DOD is actually able to execute uh, on those types of initiatives. And, you know, are they leveraging commercial in the right way? Are they 
trying to leverage commercial in a way that's going to make it no different uh, than, you know, the, you know, kind of traditional defense acquisition approach uh, where the government owns all the risk uh, and companies don't have a lot of skin right. in the game. Right. Um, so I think that there are some questions there that Congress will be looking at, you know, are there, you know, different authorities, different processes. In most cases, it's, it's not a case of DOD needing new authorities. It's they need a nudge. Uh, they need they need maybe sometimes a more forceful nudge by Congress uh, to go in a new direction. But you know what I'm seeing, I look out in the the five year projection. When you you know dig in deep into the J books, um, I see a lot of interesting things happening in the latter part of the fight up and the projection. And and the question, of course, is always like, is this really going to come to pass? How realistic is this? But like one example is the NGAD program. The Air Force's uh, next generation air dominance fighter. Um, you look out, and you know, in FY twenty eight, they're projecting that one line item will be seven point two billion. Right, it is really ramping up fast, and it's driven by uh, this collaborative combat aircraft. And they've got a separate line uh, line item broken out in their project for the CCA. Um, that CCA budget actually ramps up to three billion in FY28. So, you know, of the 7.2 billion for NGAD, three billion of it is going for the uh, the CCA. Um, you know, that's pretty interesting that they're ramping up that quickly, or they think they can ramp up that quickly. I mean, that's a huge acquisition program, uh, even for the for the Air Force. And then you look over at the Navy's budget request; they've had a, a line in there for several years now called Link right. Plumeria. That's in all caps and all it has said in the past as a description is it's classified. See the classified annex. Um, but they list the funding for it. Right. And, and it's FAXX. Yeah. And so it turns out this year, we now see there is a sub project listed under it. It's the Navy's next gen fighter program. Uh, and that is ramping up to 2.7 billion by FY28. So we've got a lot of money pouring into two new fighter programs, essentially, um, you know, and the CCA that will, you know, go along with it. Um, and what do we see for the F-35? We see, you know, the Air Force variant, F-35A, um, they were at one point supposed to be ramping up to, you know, uh, 60 aircraft per year. You look at the five-year projection, it's not, uh, they're going to stay flat at 48 per year. Um, right. So, you know, all of this is, is signaling to me that the Air, the Air Force and the Navy uh, are already looking uh, to make a shift uh, towards these right. next-gen systems uh, and in a big way and perhaps sooner than a lot of people have been expecting. Um, let me ask you, uh, we've got a couple of minutes, we've got about five minutes left, uh, about the forcing function, right? Having a budget, an annual budget process forces you to get your uh, crap in order. Uh, and the continuing resolution rules are set up to be punitive to drive you, to force you into the formal, normal budget process. Now there are some members who are saying, well, you know, we, we could have sort of modify CR to not make it so bad. I mean, how do you respond to those people who want to actually basically reward more bad behavior? <laughs> well, no, that's a loaded question. Um, no, but I mean, in, in fairness, CRs are painful on purpose, right? That That's the point you're making here. It's absolutely true. If you made too many exceptions to a CR, 
uh, then there would be no real incentive for Congress to actually follow up and pass the regular appropriations bills. Um, so you have to make it painful. And the more painful it is, then, you know, the more incentive they're going to have to hurry up and pass that bill. Um, so, you know, there, there are things that you could do, like you could make exceptions for new start programs under a CR, uh, that would make it less painful and less disruptive, but you know what, uh, we've never had a full year continuing resolution for defense. You make enough ex exceptions like that. Uh, and I think we may very well be on a path, uh, to a full year continuing resolution. Um, and when we're in a high inflationary environment, uh, that really has a destructive, you know, effect uh, on the overall budget because you need, you know, in this kind of inflation environment, uh, you need four, five, six percent increase uh, in the nominal budget uh, just to stay flat. Uh, and under a CR, you don't get that. And so, and even if you had a CR that said, "Hey, we're going to do an across the board, you know, five percent increase." Um, that's going to be across every account at last year's levels. Uh, and it doesn't account for the fact that some, some accounts are ramping up, some are ramping down, right? Um, so the money's not going to be where you need it. Then you have to do all this messy, like reprogramming. Um, it, you know, you make too many exceptions and you're just setting yourself up for a full year CR. But I mean, you know, even during the Budget Control Act, right, there the supplemental, right? There were massive amounts of supplemental spending. So it's not as though the Budget Control Act was as, in, you know what I mean? I mean, we, we got the money, we didn't get the flexibility, right? I mean, there are ways around this, aren't there? Well, right? so- and, and ultimately everybody makes it work. And so people who are on the Hill just go, well, I mean, there's no repercussion. We, we still got lots of capability. It's not so, like carriers missed deployments. We tried that a little bit and, you know, <laughs> right. I'm not trying to be cynical. Well, but entirely. no, but you, you look back at what happened. Um, so we actually only had sequestration once in FY13. Uh, that was the only time it was triggered. It did result in a uniform percentage cut across all affected accounts. And then, then there were exceptions built into the law um, that were complicated, you know, to work out. But once they worked it all out, um, they figured out how to make the cuts. And then you know what they did? They went to Congress and got a huge reprogramming authority and moved lots of money around among accounts to try to patch up the worst of the damage. Even given all of that, uh, in FY13, there was substantial disruption uh, in you know, our civilian workforce at DOD, you know, with furloughs, without pay that never got, they never got their pay back for those days. Uh, and disruptions in readiness and maintenance that had a ripple effect literally for years afterward. Um, so did we save a little money uh, by you know, forcing some spending cuts? Well, not really. If you account right. for all of the ripple effects that happened after that, trying to regain that readiness, trying to retrain people, who you know lost various you know certifications and skills, uh, you know the the effect it had on the you know morale and welfare of the the civilian workforce and the active component as well. It it was a complete mess. Um, why would we want to tempt fate and try to to do that again when it's a completely unforced error? We don't have to, right? All we have to do, you know, is figure out these other issues. I say that like it's simple, but. You know, right. we need to figure out our other political issues uh, and don't do things that are self-destructive. 
yeah okay but the definition of insanity is knowing what you're doing is crazy and doing it anyway we are we are we are doing that over and over again let me let me just take you to one last um one one point right um folks will observe uh analysts will observe including from uh the congressional research bodies right and and analysts and and others then members used to want to know alternatives, whereas now they're actually significantly less interested, right? They, they were like, look, I came to Washington to do X, Y, or Z. I'm going to do that irrespective of the facts or logic or anything else. Um, and so effectively, nobody is really being held accountable for sort of serial bad decision making, right? And as you said, right, it's not abundantly clear that the members who are egging for default actually understands what that means, ultimately, right? Yeah. What is a way that, you know, I've had people from companies ask me this question. I've heard, heard regular people ask me these questions of all political stripe. What, what potentially has to change in Washington, right? I mean, do members have to be thrown out? Um, if they don't want to be educated, there's no way to make them eat their vegetables, right? I mean, where where are we going? And and is there any way to hold any of these people accountable ultimately for what could be catastrophic, tectonic, historic mm-hmm. bad decision making? Yeah, I, I mean, in a democracy, accountability is at the ballot box, right? Uh, and you know, if, if Folks in Congress are, are making bad decisions, are pushing bad policy um, that has disastrous you know, outcomes for our national security, for our economy. Um, it's up to their constituents uh, to make a change, right? And I think maybe the 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 disconnect that we've got uh, is that you know what's happened to our our press and the ability of constituents to really understand what their members are doing and what the consequences are or could be um, if they succeed at what they're trying to do. Um, I mean, ultimately it comes back to, you know, what's happened in the media environment and social media and, and how people get their information. And, you know, then they make decisions according to what they think the truth is. Um, I think that's where we all and kind of the, you know, the, the DC environment, we all need to, you know, take a pause and maybe do a better job of explaining ourselves and explaining, you know, policy and explaining things like the defense budget to a wider audience, uh, so they can understand, you know, the real ramifications of decisions that are being made. Uh, unfortunately, many people's understanding is so two-dimensional; uh, it's it's problematic in the public discourse. Don't get me started on the importance of local news, uh, more reputable news. Yeah. We're trying to do the best job we can uh, on this little uh, channel. Uh, Todd, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure having you on the program, however depressing it might be. Always glad to be on Vago. <laughs>